Welcome to X's and O's with your hosts, Greg Cassell and Doug Farrar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X's and O's with Doug Farrar and Greg Cosell. I am Doug Farrar, managing editor of Touchdown Wire on the USA Today Sports Media Group. But that's not why you're here. You're here because we have the man, the myth, the legend, senior producer at NFL Films, uh, the rock star who started the NFL matchup show in 1984, Greg. My goodness. Uh, this is this is Greg Cosell, who's been with NFL Films since 1979. He is the godfather, the Don Corleone of all our uh, all us film companies. And, I don't know uh, if that's good or and, bad. <laughs> and well, it's, it's, it's probably both, but we're here to pay our respects. Uh, very excited about this new show, Greg, where – you know, we'll we'll talk about top. You're teams. pulling me back in, as it were, Doug. You're pulling me back in. Yeah, uh, yeah. just when you thought you were out. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about you know top guys and lists and you know to a point, but you know you and I have known each other for a long time. We talked football for a long time. We learned a lot from you. And what I like about what we do is we talk a lot about concepts and just sort of overall, you know, the thirty thousand foot view of the NFL and college and how everything works together. Of course, we're less than three weeks away from the draft, two weeks and two days, my goodness. So I wanted to get into the non-negotiables for four positions, quarterback, offensive tackle, edge rusher, and cornerback. And what I mean by non-negotiables, Greg, you talk to teams, you talk to coaches and GMs, and you know people are very familiar with you, and they will tell you things they might not tell other people. In the NFL of today, 2023, as we stand here right now, when we talk about quarterbacks and how the landscape has changed for quarterbacks and the second reaction ability that is needed and, you know, how high would you draft a Phillip Rivers who couldn't move outside the pocket now as opposed to 2004, when you look at the quarterback landscape today, transitioning from college to the NFL, what are the absolute, I don't care if he can run, I don't care if he's 80-yard touchdowns, whatever, 4-4-40, what are the absolute dead on non-negotiables for the quarterback position, no matter how athletic a guy is, no matter how far you can throw the ball, what are the things you have to have if you're going to succeed in the NFL, no matter how spectacular you were in college? I would say it starts with ball location. If you can't control the football, if you can't throw it where you want to throw it, you don't really have anything. You have to be able to throw the ball and then, the word accuracy gets used a lot. That's a more general term. But I think if you go back to the Bill Walsh's of the world, and maybe to some people listening, that might seem like, who's Bill Walsh? Um, Bill Walsh obviously was one of the greatest quarterback coaches and teachers we, the game has ever seen, won Super Bowls with the 49ers in the 80s. Um, I think that it's, it's about ball location. And I've had this conversation with coaches, with with former quarterbacks. I remember having a great conversation with Troy Aikman years ago. And he said to me, this was after he had retired, and he said, if, if, if you can't throw it where you want to, then it doesn't matter what else you can do. Right. You really don't have anything. And it starts there. Uh, because no matter whether you're throwing it from the pocket, Doug, or on the run, if you cannot control the football – and place it where you want to, you will not be successful. So that is really the number one starting point. You can make a list of 15 traits, and my guess is pretty much every quarterback coach, coordinator would have the same 15 traits. It would just be a matter of what value they ascribe to each one. But my guess is they would all start with ball location. 
I remember uh, reading a story about it was about Mike Holmgren, who of course came up under Bill Walsh. Yes. Uh, uh, San Francisco's offensive coordinator in the late 80s. And by the way, finding the winning edge right there. Uh, that's the book you want. Um, and he was upset. I know Walsh would get upset and Joe Montana would get upset if the ball was on the wrong eight of the receiver. Yeah. If it was this eight instead of this eight. No, 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 no. The fact that you hit him is not the it's not good. You need to hit him here because he's running this many steps and then he's going to stem his route. He's going to be here. You need to throw with anticipation. And I want to get into anticipation next. You need to throw with anticipation and anticipate where that kind of comes together. And I know Sid Gilman in 1964 talked to, and I know you, you wrote the book, The Games That Change a Game. Um, it was in my book, too, where he met with a maths professor. Yeah. Got into the geometry of the game, <laughs> horizontally but vertically. And he said, the field is this wide and this long, and we're going to use every damn bit of it. And he did. So we're going even further back to Sid Gilman. But if you look at the construct of the modern passing game, there isn't much that wasn't developed by Walsh or Gilman that isn't still true today, I would say. No, so, that's true. Sid Gilman, well, Sid Gilman was before Bill Walsh, and he changed uh, many things about the, the modern passing game and is, in fact, considered the father of the modern passing game because he was really – I always hate, hate to use the word first because – when I did research for the book, The Games That Changed the Games, I saw things that you go, oh, my God, they, I, I saw that in 1963. And people think that no one did that until 1978. You know, so I always hate to use the word first. But what Gilman obviously did is he actually took th there were no such thing as three wide receivers in the days of Sid Gilman. Right. But what he did in the 60s when he was the head coach of the Chargers is he actually took the fullback, Keith Lincoln, and he detached him from the formation, which was blasphemy at the time. Right. No one did that. And that changed so many things, not only about the geometry of the passing game, because now you had another primary receiver on the line of scrimmage, but it also changed, and we're not going to get into this now. You and I will be talking quite a bit over the next number of months, but it changed the nature of protection because now you had one less protector. So now the whole pass protection concepts had to change because everything about football is at its core a numbers game, Doug. It's it, That's where it all stems from. So it's just how the numbers play out. You know, defensively, you'd love to be able to rush with four because you'd love to have seven in coverage. You know, it, it's always about numbers. Now, obviously, it goes beyond that as well, but that's kind of what it's all about as a starting point. Well, let's talk about numbers. Today's NFL, it's much more a three-by-one league. It's much more yep. Y and X ISO. It's a lot more quick game, even in the last four or five years. There, I, I was looking at data uh, a couple of days ago. There have been a 1,000 more quick game snaps, zero to one step drops in, last season than there was in, I believe, 2018. So when you have these spread out sets, you have more quick game. I know that throwing with anticipation, throwing your receiver open in football parlance is still important. Is it as important as it was before, or are there other things in these particular passing games? That I don't want to minimize anticipation, but are there other things that have become more important in the last few years as passing games have changed? Well, I would say this, and not just as a, as a side point, it's like with the run game and people say, oh, the run game, not important. You know, nothing seems important until it's important. You know, 
there are going to be throws in the NFL where you need to throw with great timing and anticipation. Now, depending on the nature of a game, maybe there's five of those, maybe there's 15 of those, but there's going to be those throws. Now, you're talking about a larger, more generic point about the nature of, of the passing game as a whole, because now there's a greater emphasis on RPOs, and RPOs lead to quicker game throws, obviously. And then there's just quick game throws in general. And this is going to lead, by the way, to a non-negotiable for the corner position, but we'll get to that uh, shortly. Um, but yes, there, and I think because there's less running and more throwing, just by the very nature of that, the pass game has to become more sustaining. And therefore, quicker throws tend to lead to more sustaining plays. You know, now you're perfectly fine on first and 10 if you're going to throw it, gaining six yards, where, you know, back in the day, people didn't think about the pass game necessarily as a sustaining element. They thought about it as a more explosive element, which, of course, is not to say teams don't want explosive plays. But the more you throw, the higher percentage that you throw, and also with the field spread more because of the 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 increase in three wide receiver sets and just formationally more motion. You know, a lot of things go into this. And obviously we could talk about this for hours, which we will over time. (laughs) Um, There's so many things that all go together, but when there's a more sustaining element to your pass game, you know, that needs to be the case with less running, you need to have quicker game throws. Uh, well, that's why in 1978, you could have 50% completion percentage and go to the Pro Bowl. Uh, it doesn't happen that way anymore. Um, I want to get to offensive tackles. And again, we're talking about quick game. We're talking about RPO. The, the blocking is different. I always think of the 1976 Raiders where they're, you know, a bunch of nine-step drops. And Ken Staler was, you know, right statue back there because he had like four future Hall of Famers. You can go back to Daryl Monica. Yeah, exactly. The Mad yeah. Bomber, baby. Woohoo. Um when it comes to tackle in general, have you found that right tackles and left tackles are more interchangeable as yeah. in importance than they were, say, a decade ago, an era ago, a few years ago? When did that sort of flip? I think they are. I know some some coaches I've talked to don't agree, but I think because of the nature of a pass rush in the National Football League that right tackle and left tackle are far far more interchangeable than they've ever been. We used to hear about tackles. Oh, well, he has left tackle feet. Oh, no, he doesn't have left tackle feet. You have to move him to right tackle. Um, But now just think of the pass rushers, even without blitz, you know, the uh, Nick Bosa, he could line, you know, he'll line up on that side. Von Miller lines up on the side of the right tackle more often than not. So great pass rushers now line up. Look at TJ Watt. TJ Watt lines up almost exclusively on that side. So your right tackle has to be a very good pass protector with so-called left tackle feet, just like your left tackle. Now, one reason I think people would disagree to some extent, and it's very reasonable and I understand it, is the fact that at least the quarterback can see that. Uh, Whereas the left tackle, he can't see it. Theoretically, he should be able to feel it. The great quarterbacks feel it, but on the right side, he can see it. So you can that argument certainly does exist. But in terms overall, I think that the difference between left tackle and right tackle is nowhere near what it was years and years ago. Don't forget years and years ago, 
when when teams pretty much lined up with the tight end attached to to the line of scrimmage, the tight end was almost always on the right side of the formation. So the right tackle always had help. It was the left tackle that was, quote unquote, on an island. So that's where the whole idea of the left tackle being the better pass protector with left tackle feet kind of grew up. But the game's not like that anymore. Yeah, you're giving help to the lesser guy. Correct. That was the idea. Now, I mean, obviously, tight ends are attached at times, but much less so than it was years and years ago. I want to go back to something that I was watching tape with Walter Jones in 2017. He was a pretty good left tackle. Yeah, when Walter Jones tells me something about tackle play, I'm going to listen. And one thing he said is that it, it astonished him how passive so many tackles are in pass protection. Mean, we've all heard this pass protection isn't passive. And Walter talked about, and Bill Walsh said this about like everything you have to hit, you have to strike the first blow, right. you have to hit with the first punch. And I think in the, in today's quick game era, it is important. And I'm, I'm watching offensive tackles for, for our position lists. And I'm thinking to myself how much better a lot of these guys would fare if they didn't wait. And I understand that sometimes you have to wait and you're running your kick step and you're sort of bringing them in right. kitchen, and then you're going to do whatever you're going to do. But how important in this quick game era is it important to be able to be almost as aggressive with your hands as a defensive end would be? Well, there's different kinds of pass sets, obviously. Quick game is different. The nature of the quick game dictates certain kinds of protection. For the most part, I I think you could say there's three kinds of protection. There's the short, quick set, which is what the quick game normally entails. There's the 45-degree angle set, and there's the vertical set, which is for the deeper drops, which is what you normally get on, let's say, third and long. You know, And unless you're going to help a tackle with chips or, or with whatever you want to do, if they're going to be one-on-one, they have to be able to vertical set, and they have to be able to, in a sense, control the, the edge, but also not allow the inside counter. You know, right. so... You know, let's say you're going back to your general point of non-negotiables. You can talk about quick game all day long, and clearly the NFL has moved in that direction. But when it's third and nine, for the most part, you're not throwing quick game. Right. For the most part. I mean, uh, there's always exceptions to everything. So I, I, people should understand we're not saying that any of this is 100 percent. But if you have Tyree Chill, you might throw a receiver screen and get 30 yards. So you might, no question. <laughs> yeah. You know, when teams do do that, for instance, if they think they're going to get blitz, if they're playing a big blitzing team that blitzes, let's say from the inside, they might throw a a wide receiver screen because there'll be less bodies on the outside. So there's always exceptions. Um, but for the most part, if you're talking about longer yarded situations, particularly on third down, and let's say you're playing a team that's going to rush four or maybe five, okay, you know, your quarterback's going to take a a seven-step drop timing kind of drop, okay? You know, that can change. Obviously, everybody's in the gun these days, so it, it's it's the number of steps can be different, but it's, it's seven-step timing. So keep in mind, the way the pass game works, three-step drop timing is 1.5 seconds. Two-step, uh, five-step drop, drop timing is 2.1 seconds. Seven-step drop timing is 2.6 seconds. So essentially, if you're going to have seven-step drop timing, whether it's shotgun or under center, and it's normally shotgun on third and long, you need to protect for at least 2.6 seconds to allow the quarterback to be able to work through progressions so he can throw the ball at a distance necessary to get the first down. So if you're not going to help your tackles, 
they have to be able to vertical set, okay? They have to be able to get to a certain spot and, you know, without turning their body to the sideline, because that's right. not what you want to do. You do not want to turn your body to the sideline. You you almost want your your inside foot to be straight for at least your first two kick slide steps, okay? You probably otherwise learned... you get tapped by the inside counter. Right, right, because otherwise you're going to give up the inside. Um, so in a sense, that would be a non-negotiable because what you don't want to have to do as an offense, every offensive coach wants to send five out. They do not, there's five eligibles on every play, obviously. They want to send five out on, you know, in, on third and long, they do not want to have to keep a back or a tight end in either as a chipper or as a primary pass blocker, because now you get caught up again in the numbers game. You know, if you have to send three primary receivers out and a team's rushing four, they have seven to cover three. That's, that's not good math for an offense. No. So, Uh, yeah, (laughs) that's, you know, so basically you're talking, if you're talking non-negotiable for, for a tackle, he's got to be able to pass protect on vertical sets. Uh, getting to the worst enemies of those offensive tackles, the edge rushers. Right. And I, I want to start with, and I was informed really uh, of this by Michael Bennett, who I'm in Seattle and he played so outside. Um, and you know, he could run, he could rush like a 230 pound guy, hit you like a 280 pound guy. And he was 260. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, you see a lot more edge rushers playing inside how important is it to be able to, again, we're talking about quick game. How important is it to be able to get to the quarterback in a straight line? And how much more important is that kind of interior pressure when you're dealing with so many more zero to three step drops? Because it's yeah. it, it's shortest, shortest point between A and B is a straight yeah. line. We know this. Well, a lot of, not all quick game, but a lot of quick game, particularly the RPO game involves in breaking routes. You know, a lot of slants, a lot of glance routes, you know, those quick in-breaking routes. Now, RPOs have expanded. Don't forget, an RPO, you can do anything you want as long as you can protect. That's that's what it all comes down to. So Yeah, there are two and three level RPOs, we know. Correct. This. Right. So, and the RPO game has expanded greatly because, you know, teams have started to say, hey, as long as we can protect, we can run different route concepts. You know, the, the game is always evolving, as you know. Um, so... Inside pressure is obviously always a really good thing because, number one, if you're going to throw quick game and you're going to throw inside, you'd like to get pressure there. Outside pressure in a quick game usually has no – doesn't factor into a throw. Um, Overall, you'd like to get inside pressure as well because you'd like to squeeze the pocket for the quarterback because, you know, keep in mind, the the way this works with pass protection is – Interior guards and centers control the depth of the pocket. Tackles control the width of the pocket. Yeah. Okay. That's a good the way to depth play. of the pocket is really, really – it's why, for instance, with shorter quarterbacks, think Drew Brees with Sean Payton and the mm-hmm. Saints, why the center and the two guards for them were so critically important yes. because the depth of the pocket needed to be controlled because Drew Brees is six feet and he needed – to see number one, and he needed space to step up because you know he's he was a shorter quarterback. So he and here's needed, Sean Payton now with another short quarterback. Go figure. There you go. 
and it wouldn't surprise me if, if that becomes a focus, particularly yeah. as Russell Wilson gets older and doesn't move around quite as much. Um, so, you know, that that's that's for offensive line. But if you're going to get to pass rushers, I think to me, when I'm evaluating pass rushers, let's say watching college tape, mm-hmm. what I want to see is how they do in their first two, three, four steps. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not looking at secondary pass rush, okay? Because there's a difference between rushers and pursuers. There's nothing wrong with being a pursuer and getting a sack, you know, off a secondary or a redirect or a retracing your steps. I mean, all sacks, by definition, are good. Yeah. But if you're looking to see whether a, a player is going to be a really good pass rusher, you want to see how he does in his first two, three, four steps. That, to me, is the moment of truth for a pass rusher. And that's what I would look at in evaluating players. It seems to me that in the last, I will say, five years, maybe it's just because I've become more aware of it, uh, you know, your your frame of reference goes back further. There seems to be more, um, you know, the the there's the looper, you know, more stunts, basically. To, to- well, there's more stunts. There's more multiple front looks. Everybody yeah. has these loaded fronts now with three defensive linemen to one side of the center, which almost always produces some kind of stun. There's a lot of five-man fronts now, however teams get to it. I mean, everything evolves and changes. That's what you're seeing in the league. So with an edge rusher, what I'm getting to is you want, you know, you, you talk about the bend and the motorcycle lean and the quickness around the arc. How much more important now is it is it for the guy to be able to loop inside efficiently and in the ways that will foil enemy blockers? Well, now you're getting you're getting into pass rush schemes because obviously you're talking about stunts where you're going to have a penetrator and a, and a looper. And, you know, and that's why flexibility and bend for pass rushers is also critical. There's a lot of straight line pass rushers who don't necessarily have great bend and power is a, is, is a good thing. Power usually translates from college to the NFL. Um, but you want to be able to have some bend and flexibility in order to, to uh, be effective as a looper in the stunt game, because you really want to work right off the, the, the tail of your penetrator. And, you know, you want to be able to do that. Uh, so, that that's become increasingly important as well. But if you're just looking at pure one-on-one matchups and, and non-negotiables, you've got to be able to win relatively early. As I said, in the first two, three, four steps, because if you start getting stuck, you know, in an ideal world, the ball's out and you're not going to get to the quarterback. Um, So that's, that to me is how I would look at, at evaluating pass rushers. And that's why, for the most part, pass rushers need to have really good ones more than one move because one move is not going to be enough in the National Football League. Yeah, these guys are pretty good. They'll tend to figure it out. Uh, finishing with cornerbacks, and I don't know if it's just a, a, a particular blip this year. I can't remember a class that had so many cornerbacks 5'11 or taller, more yeah. importantly, six feet or taller. Um, it's, you know, Darwinian, we, it's Darwinian evolution because we're still yeah. getting bigger. We all wanted Richard Sherman a decade ago, and there weren't too many of him. It seems like, you know, you just go through, you know, my whole list of 11 cornerbacks. There were nine guys over 5'11", and, you know, it's great if you can get that. But And you you mentioned one non-negotiable, and I think I know what it is because we've talked about this before. In today's NFL, what are the non-negotiables for cornerbacks as they transition from college to the NFL? you got to be able to play press man. There you go. 
I knew because it. <laughs> if you can't play press man, number one, the quick game, there's too many throws in front of you. You're just giving up those throws. Um, so I would say to me that that's an absolute non-negotiable nowadays. You have to be able to line up and play press man coverage somewhere along the line. Now, some guys are going to be better at it than others, no question. And there's two kinds of press man, and this depends on the nature of the corner and what his traits and then overall skill set is. There's mirror match press man in which you do not physically put your hands on the receiver and you basically allow him to declare his release and you immediately get right in his hip pocket, whether it's inside or outside or his shoulder, some teach it with the shoulder, but whatever it is, you get in the hip pocket or the shoulder right away once they declare the release. And then of course there's physical press man where some guys are better at it than others. You know, sometimes long arm guys in this draft, and we'll get to this down the road, you know, the Joey Porters of the juniors yeah. of the world with 34 inch arms, which is freakish for a corner. You know, yeah, they have the ability, a wingspan than Peter Skaronsky is just, yeah. I mean, they, they have, you know, it's like Giannis in basketball, right. you know, they have, they have, you know, the physical traits with that arm length to be able to play physical press man and disrupt a receiver off the line of scrimmage. And if it's a sh- if it's quick game or or shorter game throws, the quarterback is then going to look away because the receiver has been disrupted and the timing with that receiver is 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 done. So there, those are the two types of press man, mirror match and physical. And then it just depends on, you know, how you want to play it. You know, you don't have to be tall to look. There's a lot of short, shorter corners that thrive on being competitive, feisty, aggressive, physical. There's one in this draft, Devin Witherspoon, who's like that. You know, there's been a lot of guys through the years who who are shorter, but that's the way in which they play. So you don't have to be six, two or six, three with 33 or 34 inch arms to be a physical press man corner. You know, and then there's other guys who have really good size who are just so smooth and comfortable. Think Champ Bailey over the years, a yeah. Hall of Famer. He was a master in mirror match press, man. It just, he was so silky smooth. It just, it looked like he was, you know, out in practice playing press man, you know. So, you know, there's different ways to do it. It just depends on what you're comfortable with and what your skill set is, but you have to be able to play press man. Well, these are our non-negotiables for quarterbacks, offensive tackles, edge rushers, and cornerbacks in the uh, college-to-pro transition. Uh, One non-negotiable, Greg, you're the best, and uh, we look forward to continuing this series next week. Thank you so much. Thanks, Doug.